You're listening to the Well Woman Healthy Lifestyle Podcast, episode number 82. And today I had the great pleasure of introducing Melanie Rogers. She's a certified eating disordered registered dietitian and accelerated supervisor in the treatment of eating disorders. She's the founder and executive director of Balance Eating Disorder Treatment Center and Melanie Rogers Nutrition LLC in New York City. Among her many affiliations, Melanie is the founder and recent past president of the New York City chapter of the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals, an advisory board member at the Center for the Study of Anorexia and Bulimia, and a former board member of the Binge Eating Disorder Association. She's also an adjunct professor in the Department of Nutrition and Food Sciences at New York University. She recently launched and published Redefining Wellness, the ultimate diet-free guide, a free ebook that contains contributions from 152 experts. And today, ladies, I don't know if you know this, but I used to work in mental health a long time ago when I first started my nursing career, and I worked with a lot of young women who had eating disorders. So this topic today is near and dear to my heart. And it was great to sit down and chat with Melanie because she is on the same wavelength as I am as far as like nutrition goes. And you're just going to have to wait to hear her philosophy behind eating and stuff and her approach to it. Because after I got off the interview with her, I started thinking about my own eating habits. And even though I eat really well, sometimes I have a tendency to get rigid and sometimes maybe even a little bit obsessed with how I eat and what I eat and what I don't eat. So she gave me some new perspectives and some new tips on how to really kind of approach and looking at nutrition that I think you're all going to find really refreshing. We talk about the difference between disordered eating and what is an eating disorder, the difference between those two, and you'll find it very distinctly different. It's kind of cool. Then we dove into what ways can social media impact on body image. And then we kind of talked through the whole interview about why diets don't work and what's the alternative. And y'all, can you give me an amen for why diets don't work? Because you hear me talking about that all the time. So wherever you are, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Melanie Rogers on disordered eating or eating disorders and knowing the difference and more importantly, about how we should look and approach how we look at food so that we don't fall into the trap of getting into this disordered eating and even moving into eating disorders. So can't wait for you to hear. Let's dive on in. Well, women, it's time for a new perspective on women's health. A time to understand that your greatest wealth is your health. A time to make self-care your number one priority. A time to recognize that good health is the only way to live your best life and do all that you can in this world. So join me on this journey where we'll explore women's health topics from a medical provider's viewpoint. Have conversations about everyday healthy lifestyle options and enjoy interviews with other well women we can all learn from. It's time to demystify women's health and learn practical ways to apply self-care to every part of our lives. This is the Well Woman Lifestyle Podcast, and I'm your host, Michelle Broad, certified women's and adult nurse practitioner, daughter, wife, mother, and all-out women's health enthusiast. So you ready to start the journey? Let's go. Well, welcome back, everybody, to another episode. And today I have a really great treat and guest for you. We have Melanie Rogers, and she is 
a body image and she's an eating disorder coach. Is that, am I saying that correctly? Mm-hmm. I'm an eating disorder um, registered dietitian. Yes. Yes. And so I've been wanting to have this discussion with her for a couple of weeks. We, we talked about a week ago about getting onto here and doing an interview. So because maybe some of you don't know that I used to be a mental health worker in my day when I was younger, and we had to deal with a lot of um, eating disorders with young women. And not, not today, it's, it's in both, but most of the time it's in women. So we're going to be discussing that and a lot of other things like body image today. And I think you're going to get a lot out of it. So first of all, welcome, Melanie, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for your time, Michelle. It's absolutely a pleasure. So tell us, in your own words, a little bit about yourself, your background, and how did you get interested in this particular topic? Uh, Well, I'm originally from Australia, and uh, I was interested in becoming a registered dietitian because I wanted to work um, in the health field, but I wanted to work on preventative medicine. Um, So kind of veered away from becoming a doctor or that route and went into nutrition thinking that I could have more impact on on helping people before they get into developing an illness. But anyway, that was how I kind of went into the field of nutrition. But also um, what I did, Michelle, is I decided to come over to the States from Australia to do my master's degree in clinical nutrition. And the reason I wanted to come here is because there is an obesity research center here in New York City. And as a nutritionist, I wanted to be close to the research. And this is like 20 years ago. So, um, you know, concerns about nations, um, having a population, Australia included, where, you know, our, our people are increasing in size and a lot of concern about what the causes were. So I wanted to be here and be a part of that. And where that actually led me is at the Obesity Research Centre, where I later interned and then worked, is there I was introduced to binge eating disorder. And they had an amazing setup there with uh, uh, therapists, um, a psychiatrist, medical doctor, and registered dietitian. And uh, so it was a multidisciplinary approach to an eating disorder. So it wasn't just the kind of basic outdated concept of dieting calories in, calories out. It was really looking at people's relationship with food, uh, behaviors around food, um, and and then looking, of course, at the medical um, side effects of the overuse of food in this case, or as I've later gone on in my career to work with people who struggle with anorexia and bulimia as well, in those cases is often um, significant underuse of food for extended periods of time. So that that's kind of how it all led me to eating disorders. So not a deliberate step on my behalf, but once I did start to work with clients, I was fascinated by the psychological piece as well as the biological, physiological piece, which I was trained in. That sounds fantastic. And, you know, I often talk to the community and I've said this because, you know, as a nurse practitioner, I see a lot of people too, women in particular, who want to lose weight that, you know, weight loss is not, it's a complex subject and there's a lot of different components to it and everybody is individual. And I mean, you probably, I don't know if you feel the same way, but you know, there's 9,000 different diets out there. And when I say diet in that sense, I'm using the word diet plans. Yeah. And the reason that so many of them don't work is, you know, because 
they're all, most of them are cookie cutter, but a lot of them too don't really address, you know, the main reason why some people have, you know, overeating issues or like in some cases, like you were saying, an undereating issue. So I just love the fact that you talked about the multidisciplinary approach, because I think that in any, any setting in medicine, we have to look at different, you know, different modalities and what's at play here to really understand and to help people get over whatever their illness may be. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, it's the quintessential kind of looking at the person as a, a whole person, the holistic approach, which I know, you know, people talk about that a lot, but it's not often actually put into practice. Um, but it is the gold standard of treatment for eating disorders and disordered eating, um, because that's on a spectrum. And I'm sure we'll touch upon that um, today. But uh, it's... Um, you know, it's they're very, very complex and complicated. And as you said, they do absolutely need a team to be able to look at each each different aspect of the illness. Yeah, definitely. I wish that we could do that even in mainstay medicine. But as I tell people, that just is not a reality today. That's yeah. why we talk so much about, you know, being yourself, your number one self-care advocate. Okay, so I want to dive into this concept. I think, well, let me see, I wrote my notes here where I want to start. Um, so you mentioned disordered eating. So tell me what's, in your opinion, what's the difference between disordered eating and an eating disorder? It's uh, honestly, we, we look at it as being on a spectrum. So disordered eating is where we might be not eating carbs, for example, but it's not just taking carbs out. It's feeling out of control. If I were to eat carbs or feeling that carbs are bad or carbs are really unhealthy or having some kind of attachment to carbs in a way that makes us feel um, that there's almost an anxiety. In fact, not almost, there is. There's an anxiety related to that food. That would be disordered eating. Um, and then if you think about on a spectrum, you can therefore cut out carbs at maybe dinner, or you can be cutting out carbs completely and you could be losing weight and then you could be terrified to regain weight. And so that's kind of the same symptomology, but on a spectrum where it increases in severity and tends to snowball into more and more obsessive thinking. And then before you know it, we're in a situation where someone is terrified of regaining weight and won't touch carbs uh, to the detriment of their own health. And then they end up with osteopenia, osteoporosis, um, underweight, low blood pressure and in hospital, which would be, you know, anorexia as an example there. So, you know, we see a lot of people, honestly, the a full-blown eating disorder, if you think about it from a perspective of um, proportion in, in the community, um, it's really the, the tip of the iceberg would be full-blown eating disorders, whereas under the, the, the main bulk of the iceberg is underneath of what's below the surface, right? And so, honestly, much more of the community struggles with disordered eating than a full-blown eating disorder. It is so prevalent and it's so prevalent, but also probably, as you've seen, Michelle, so normalized. You know, I live in New York City where disordered eating is considered to be the normal way of eating, you know, it's and it's it's considered uber healthy or uber this or uber that. But people are walking around with all this anxiety about food. So that's not healthy as a start point. Definitely. Yeah. And well, because out in my area, I don't know if in your area in New York, but out here, you know, keto is, you know, is like all the rage and it's been the rage for a while. And, you know, you see 
this diet, that diet, and they come and they go, but this one seems to be sticking around for like a pretty long, lengthy period of time. Yeah. And, and I think that, like you said, so many people just, so we start off, so it starts off, it sounds to me like, okay, it can start off as a disordered, you know, pattern of thinking. And then it can actually, for some people, it moves into a full blown on the spectrum eating, it can turn into an eating disorder. And so tell me, so if I'm, tell me if I'm correct or not. So what I'm thinking about is the moving down the spectrum. It has to do with like the changes in our, in our thought patterns of towards food. Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what we know is that when you start to eat in an inconsistent way or you cut out, in the case of keto, you cut out carbs. I mean, it's it's the same thing about making carbs evil as started back with Atkins. I mean, or pre that. It's just got a different name, you know. And you and I both coming from the medical field also know where the keto diet originated from. It was to treat kids who were having seizures. And I remember working back in the hospital 20 odd years ago as an intern and trying to develop, you know, this keto diet for kids. And it's just honestly, a full-blown keto diet is revolting. I mean, it's just so high fat and high protein and um, hard to sustain, honestly. But um, I digress. So yes, you're talking about cutting out certain foods and then it starts to get obsessive because it starts to change brain chemistry. Got it. So anytime you're eating inconsistently, you start to mess around with your own hormone production. Mm -hmm. And also think when we think of, um, when we think of, um, weight loss or, or think about playing with our food in the way of, um, changing our macros around. One thing we tend to miss is that our brain will only run on glucose and it needs essential essential carbohydrates to fuel the brain. And so when you're not eating enough carbohydrate, which many, many people are afraid of carbs, um, then you also start to see this kind of almost a malnutrition effect on the brain. And we start to see a reduction in the chemical um, transmitters in the brain. And we also start to see some really interesting things around obsessiveness, increase in irritability, and an increase in anxiety. Um, now, the very interesting thing is that um, carbohydrates, we know, uh, not to get too chemical, but when you do eat carbohydrates, it actually ends up um, producing uh, an extra uh, boost, if you will, of serotonin in the brain. So eating carbs actually helps us to feel less anxiety. Um, via insulin response, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, if you're taking carbs out, you're really starting to mess around with mood and, as I said, obsessive thinking. And then that obsessive thinking can take you down the rabbit hole. Yeah, no, I, th I think it's so true. I think we get so... Instead of eating normally, and we're going to talk about that because I know that you talk about you know di why diets don't work and I'm, I'm on that same wavelength with you. It's just yeah. that I think people... Because, you know, because weight loss is a complex thing and, you know, and writers and authors, nothing against, you know, book authors and stuff who are trying to, to do things out there, you know, but they try to simplify it down to it's one thing and this one thing works for everybody. And then, you know, and it's, and it's not true because what works for one person may not work for another person, you know, and it's kind of, and I think that you have to just look at, at who you are. And you have to look at a lot of different modalities. Like I tell people, you know, and I'm sure you probably do in your clinic setting too, you know, you know, what is, you know, food, what does food mean to you? You know, what are your triggers? There's a whole lot of things, you know, your family history. So, and, and people don't look at that. They don't even start to even consider all of those other factors 
of weight loss or to help them lose weight if that's what they're trying to do in their program. It's just, oh, I've got to follow this eating thing and they get on it and oh my God, you know, and then they get crazy. And if they do lose some weight, like I've seen a lot of people who do lose weight on keto, but then the point is, well, when do you get off of that? Right, right. And that's the key piece. Yeah. And that's the key piece that really, you know, the diet industry, the latest statistics, it's a $74 billion industry. And that's only here in the United States. That's an annual amount that we as Americans pay um, towards, you know, diets and, and, and weight loss products and services. And um, the reality is, and this may not be popular with people to hear, but it is the truth, diets do not work. Mm-hmm. 95% of people who go on a diet will regain the weight and regain even more. And that's over a two to five year period. So sure, any of us can lose weight on keto or Atkins or know this or know that or whatever you want to call it. You know, all these sexy sounding diets out there sound like they're it, they're the silver bullet that we've been looking for. But the reality is, is that two to five years out, most people will have regained the weight plus some. And then that leads to the even more dangerous cycle of yo-yo dieting. Mm -hmm. So for every diet you go on, you lose the weight, but then you regain and you add on some pounds. So now you're at a higher weight than when you started that first diet. And then do that over and over, year over end. 10 years later, you might be 50 pounds heavier than you originally were. And that becomes your new set point. So it really messes up people's metabolic rate and body composition Um, And for women, especially because we've also got other things that we're dealing with, such as going through childbirth and pregnancies, which affect us. There's menopause, which affects us hormonally, which therefore affects our weight. So add on all those things. And next thing you know, you could be, you know, 50 to 100 pounds at a higher weight than than you were as as a younger person. And that's where there may be therefore medical complications that may come in as a result of those body composition changes over time. Absolutely. And part of that too is um, in your in your practice where you do the multi, no, multidisciplinary approach, that's just not what we're seeing in mainstream. And it's not what people who even go on these programs are not even partaking in these other areas that, that they have to get healthy in as well in order to make that sustained weight loss. Yeah, it's tough, Michelle, because the medical industry is still, still telling people to lose weight. If you go to your average doctor and they'll, they'll always weigh you and they often will comment on your weight, you may need to lose 10 pounds, you need to lose 20 pounds, and they're really behind because they don't get training on the research around um, the impact that I just mentioned about weight loss and that it's not a sustainable option over time going on these very um, extreme diets. Um, But it's what our medical industry is telling us and it's what our culture and community is telling us to do. So the average consumer is going to think that they're trying to do the right thing for themselves by going on one of these diets, not realizing though that you know, not if, if, if your doctor gave you the option to go on a medicine and said, this medicine has a 95% chance of not working, would you go on it? The, the answer to that, I think most people would say, are you kidding me? Can't you give me something better? Um, but not knowing that, the average person will go on one of these diets with all good intentions. And then when it doesn't work and they regain the weight, they blame themselves. So they beat themselves up, not realizing that the whole program to begin with 
uh, was not something that was going to set them up to succeed. Correct. Absolutely, too. I, I totally agree with that, too, because I used to work in a, a while ago, I used to work in a weight loss clinic, and I don't anymore. And part of it was because they just wanted to give people pills. And, you know, and then once they got off this, they just gained the weight back again. And it's because they wow. learned, they, they never learned the stuff that they needed to learn. They didn't change their, their thinking. Okay. Right. And to go along with the weight loss. And for a lot of people, and you probably see this too. Um, if people are like, you know, 350 pounds, if people are grossly overweight, there is usually a mental health component to that. Okay. Like some people they're overweight. They've got some boo-boos and owies going on that need to be looked at. But see, we, you know, like you said, it's true. Cause when I practice, we get seven minutes per patient and an HMO and a lot of PPOs even will not even pay or allow somebody to go see a nutritionist for normal. So you have to be diabetic, you know, or some reason like that in order for you to even be able to go to to see a nutritionist. Yeah. And um, and that's a shame because they just don't pay for it and that they should because it's something preventative. But then again, like you said too, nothing to put down, you know, registered dietitians. But then a lot of these, you know, they're using the standard American diet, they're using the food pyramids. And, you know, and again, it's either no fat, you know, because people have had heart attacks or something, or it's high fat. It's like, you know, it seems like it's extremes all the time. It's never like in the middle. And like what you and I both, it sounds like what we both try to teach people is, you know, is eat, eat, eat good, you know, and have a good relationship with your food, you know, and and understand, you know, like I try to tell the women to, you know, food is meant to be nutrition to your body. So, you know, you need to understand that relationship for it. So, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, I, I went to a conference last week, a couple of weeks ago, and they had up on the board, you know, of the United States and like all the red areas where obesity is like, like over 85% of that particular state. And it's, oh, wow. crazy. And, it's and it's crazy because like, like in Georgia and in those type of states, the ent- almost the entire state is all red. I mean, red, the obesity population has increased and now you know, we're going to talk about body image and I've talked about this on another podcast. So I'd like to hear, you know, your input too. I think that, you know, we should love ourselves as people and love our hearts and everything, but we also need to be healthy in that body image too. And we've gone to the extreme now with this body positivity type of stuff saying that, you know, if you were, if you're grossly overweight or you're unhealthy, you know, love your body. Yes. I think we should love ourselves, but at the same time, we should want to be healthy in that love of our body. Yes, yes, I, I agree. Um, it becomes, you know, there's a lot of schools of thought on this and, and, and one of them um, that we're seeing at our conferences as well around the body positivity movement is um, I think there's backlash there and there's also backlash to the point that, you know, some people are saying, well, I'm in a higher weight, I live in, in a higher weight body and it's my right, it's my decision whether or not I choose to be healthy or not. So basically get out of my face. So we definitely have seen um, a a real backlash around this idea that, um, you know, there's so much over over, uh, concern and anxiety around the population becoming a larger, a higher weight population as a whole. And again, I referred to Australia where I'm originally from, the top five, Australia's in the top five along with the U.S., um, so, you know, Australia is, is, um, has an image of being a country of a lot of, you know, very sports oriented people, I think is what people tell me, but we're also struggling with this, you know, America's not alone in that. So 
it's really concerning. But to your point around the body positivity piece, um, yeah, there are two spectrums of thought there. One where it's kind of basically my body is my business, so get out of my face and leave me alone. And if I choose to be healthy or not, it's my business. And I have to say maybe they do have a point around that. Um, You know, who are we to say that you must be healthy? However, because I work in the health field, um, I like to think that if we keep ourselves healthy, we have a better shot at being able to do all the wonderful things we want to do in life Mm -hmm. and not be a burden on other people and have a longer, healthier life, um, which is appealing to me. Um, So therefore, I do prioritise health. Um, But having said that, I think what you're really touching upon there, Michelle, is this idea of moderation. Um, and kind of finding the middle ground, like, you know, eating, eating with food, our food should be pleasurable. Mm-hmm. And yes, because it's the fuel for our body, uh, my take is that we have a biological responsibility to nourish our body. It's kind of like fuel for your car, right? You don't put sand in your car for fuel. You put, usually if you've got a brand new car, you pay for the more expensive gas as well, right? Yeah. To take care of the engine. Um, and so thinking of it in a similar way to that. Um, so the body positivity movement, yes, there's, there's a lot there. Um, and we're seeing a lot of different kind of breakout groups around that. Now, there is one main group, it's called Health at Every Size. And my understanding of health at every size, because, you know, we, we um, certainly share that with our clients and try and move that, them in, their dire- in that direction, the idea that no matter our, our weight on a scale, um, the idea that wherever you are, you can be taking steps towards being healthy. So we work from that angle. Um, and that could be that if you haven't been able to walk much to even just increasing your walking, you know, let's say you are 350 pounds then that's a lot of weight that you need to shift through space to take a walk. That can be exhausting and that can put a lot of strain on knees and and ankles and such. And so it may actually be physically uncomfortable to be moving around, particularly as we age. Mm -hmm. Um, So trying to help our our people, our clients um, embrace whatever might feel good for them to have some kind of movement with their body and then around food choices at being moderate Uh, with the idea that you have your so-called fun foods, you know. I mean, food is about pleasure as well as nourishment. And as I like to tell my clients, one of my favourite foods is my Doritos and a glass of white wine. Uh, (laughs) Can't beat that as far as I'm concerned. So there's got to be room for for everything. Um, One of the big things that um, we like to bring our clients back to, Michelle, to get away from the dieting and the counting calories is the idea of, not an idea, but basic, basic um, uh, physiological regulatory systems within our bodies, which is intuitive eating. Yes. So intuitive eating, thank goodness, has actually gained a lot of um, popularity and a lot of people are starting to embrace it. Really what it is, is it's being in touch with your, your hunger and fullness cues and satiety cues that we're born with um, and trying to eat when we're hungry and trying to stop when we're comfortably full and making sure that what we eat feels satisfying, which means if you don't eat your carbs, you're usually not going to be satisfied. And likewise, if you have a low-fat meal, 
you may also not feel satisfied. So making sure it's got, you know, those macro compositions in it. Um, But trying to help clients move towards that and to therefore be able to identify when might they be eating when they're not hungry or when might they be eating beyond fullness. And that's what we call more emotional eating. And so therefore not physiological eating, hedonistic eating is another word for it. But that's where those extra calories come in and that's where someone can can see over time their body weight, weight might be increasing um, from overconsumption of food that's not related to meeting their basic metabolic needs. So trying to help people kind of move back in that direction in a very gentle but consistent way can really be helpful and and be a complete um, antidote to trying to go on a strict rigid diet um, that we know is going to set them up for long-term failure. Yeah, my, my friend Didi would just be loving you to death. She talks about intuitive eating and she talks about it to her clients too and about eating when you're full, you know, eating when you're hungry and then when you're not. But I think that too, you know, I, I think we have to go back to a large portion of, of even of any population, you know, whether you are overweight, underweight, you know, wherever you are with eating, I think we've lost that ability of intuit, intu, you know, intuitive eating. Yes. And today it's like, you know, just eat like, like, I don't know, like eat till there's no end. And yes. people, you know, are just consuming and consuming and they're eating out of boredom and people, and we'll talk about this, people are eating out of, out of, out of feeling depressed and they're emotionally eating and they're this or that because we have so much stress going on. So, you know, I, the, I think that we have to go back and start teaching people this, even people who are not, who don't have necessarily like, you know, eating disorders per se, would you not agree? Absolutely. I totally agree. We get so separated from it. The very first time that we go on a diet and a diet by default is externalizing the decision around how much we eat and when we eat and what we eat versus the internal process of intuitive eating, which is about I'm hungry, I need to eat now, I'm full, that was enough. Um, And so the very first time we go on a diet, we start messing with that system. And little bit by little bit, what I'm sure you've seen as well, Michelle, is that we start to distrust that system because let's say you, let's go with our carb, our carb example. Let's say you take out all the carbs out of your diet or minimize them extremely. You go to a restaurant and they put the bread basket on the table. And immediately, if you haven't been eating bread, you may feel panicked that if you start to eat that bread, you are going to eat all of it. Mm-hmm. And part of that is actually a physiological response to restriction. That is really more about what's going on there. Um, and so, you know, this idea about, about trying to not be extreme in eliminating any one thing, um, but being more tuned into um, true hunger and true fullness rather than this diet said I can only have three ounces of fish and two leaves of lettuce. <laughs> I'm being extreme, but you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so to your point, because the diet culture is so prolific and we think that that's what we should be doing to be healthy because that's the messaging. It's very loud and clear out there. No one's really telling us that the best way to have good weight maintenance and therefore optimal health for your genetic basis is really to try to stay as true to your intuitive internal regulatory system as you possibly can and make sure you've got, you know, some movement in your, in your, in your lifestyle and those good things. 
Um, it's not as sexy as the next best diet. And I think that that's where it's hard to package it and sell it, so to speak. Um, But to your point, Michelle, I think that that's really what we need. That's the messaging we need to be getting out there. Yeah, definitely. Because I, and I think we need to start talking more and more to younger kids today about this, because I think that a lot of adult, the adult population has kind of lost touch with this type of eating. And therefore, you know, we're passing on, you know, we pass on what we know, not not in ignorance sometimes, but that's what we know. And so that we're passing on those same patterns to our children. And especially, I think a lot with the, with this younger generation, you know, like I, in before the industrial age, you know, we didn't, we didn't see so much of all of this going on because, you know, people exercised, they had a walk, they didn't, they couldn't have a car. They, there was no stores where they went and bought all the stuff, you know, people made it from scratch. And now, you know, I was talking to my mom about this the other day. I said, you know, I like convenience like the next person, but I think that in, in that package of convenience, we've conditioned people to be lazy. And I don't mean to say that in a bad sense, and that may turn some people off, but it's like, Everybody wants it now. Nobody wants to have to work for it. And I think that when women too, because we get the double-edged sword, when women went back into the workforce, you know, they had to, not only you go to work, but then you come home and then you have to do all the same stuff at home. And then you have kids, you know, then they invented, you know, here's the fast food. So, hey, just take your kids through the drive-thru while on the way to the soccer field, you know, you don't have time to cook on your way home, no problem. Just, you know, go to the grocery store, buy everything in a bag, can, box, whatever, and just pop it into the, you know, the microwave. So we've made convenience. To me, it has led to a lot of unhealthy choices and a lot of unhealthy, you know, values in our society, which has led to a lot of increase in disease. Yeah, absolutely. I I would very much agree with you there. I think convenience is a big factor. And I would add to that, that as we as things have become more convenient or rather our lives have become more and more hectic um therefore convenience is also becomes a, a, a necessity to just get through your day um so you know I, I know i for one have grabbed the mac and cheese and thrown it in the microwave on more than one occasion for my daughter as well just because you get home and you're exhausted mm-hmm. you know your point michelle about convenience has led us to maybe being a little lazier because you know this is pre-remote control for our tv where when we would i don't know about you i'm aging myself but when i was a kid i was the remote control you know um i would get up and change the channel but uh but you know Part of that, part of that um, laziness, if you want to call it that, I think is just absolute exhaustion as yes. well. So we rely more and more on convenience because we're so over scheduled and so exhausted. Um, but to your point, that leaves us with a lot of um, not great choices, um, quick and easy food choices. And I would add to that. So yes, fast food plays a big role there of uh, filling in the gaps there. Um, and I, I would also add to that, and we've seen this, um, if you look at the studies on the size or the portions of our food over the last couple of decades, and you'll see that everything has become, you know, kind of more and more supersized. Okay. And there's some very good research out there around um, habituation of portion sizes. So mm-hmm. we've talked about intuitive eating uh, today together. But another piece to, the, to that piece of fullness 
is that we also do become habituated to larger portions. Mm -hmm. So our sense of fullness is a fullness at a certain level or volume of food that's actually honestly more than we we really need metabolically. Um, And that's part of perhaps, you know, as a society, um, with manufacturing now being what it is, we can get much larger volumes of food at cheaper prices. Mm-hmm. Also, with an increase in the middle class, um, people have access to more food um, than, than, than perhaps ever before, cheaper and larger volumes. And who doesn't love to go to one of those, you know, all-you-can-eat buffets or $15 all-you-can-eat buffets and Olive Garden has them and such. And when I watch those ads on TV, I just think, oh, my gosh, you know, we're kind of priming society to to expect big portions because we think that that's what we, um, we should be eating. Absolutely, yes. I mean, you, that's, you see it everywhere. And that's just what you start to think is the norm. Like I said, you know, we, we become conditioned to that this is the norm, like you were saying. And so then you have to, the big condition is to try to go the opposite direction. So sometimes you see the pendulum swing way over to this way, and then it starts to shift back. So I think, you know, now we're seeing a little, we're starting to see a little shift back because I think that the obesity and not so much obesity in the sense of the word obesity, but I think the thing that, that, that all of it brings with it, like, you know, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, like you were saying, you know, arthritis, all those type of things. I think as we see the increase in, you know, in diseases that has to do with obesity, now we're starting to play a more emphasis and like, okay, now we need to start looking at things because I don't think obesity, you know, years and years, you know, several years ago wasn't like how it is now. So I think as it gets and becomes more, then it starts to like, you know, organizations start to say, okay, now we got to start talking about this and start doing something about it. And so I think we're starting to see a shift in a little bit in that direction and people are starting to become more aware. And that's kind of like, that's a good thing in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's a really good thing. And and you are right. We're seeing now, you know, in the supermarkets, um, snacks, for example, that's one thing that comes to mind. And now they're, again, convenience, but I think it's good convenience. Um, And they're they're portioned in more what what I as a registered dietitian would think would consider to be more appropriate um, portions. You know, so you're, you're, um, I don't know, there's the little 100-calorie snack packs of this and this and this. So it's a good size amount for a snack. And so we are seeing that. And also I think, honestly, the food industry is kind of running scared a little bit that uh, they're going to be, you know, followed with a huge lawsuit around um, the growing growing, um, obesity or higher weights that we're seeing in our societies. And, you know, someone's got to pick up the bill uh, I guess is is what the government might be thinking, but anyway, so I'm seeing them trying to be a little bit more uh, conscious and aware. Um, and even, you know, Coca-Cola now has a lot of water brands and, and that sort of thing. You know, they're moving away from just having their eggs in one basket ar- around what they're promoting and, and the different types of foods that they're putting out there in the community. Um, but yeah, I think it's a very good thing. I think that it's because people aren't aware. I know a lot of people that I talk to, they're not aware of portion sizes, you know, and and most people, you know, are not taking the time to like flip that label over and kind of read, you know, what is a portion, you know, and now, like you said, they're like now, which is really good is like one bag is now a portion, but, you know, not too long ago, one bag could have been 
two, three, sometimes four portions and people were not realizing that. So they just eat the entire thing and they don't, they think that they're just eating one portion when really they're eating four. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Because it's tricky stuff, you know, and that's, that's where I think, um, even basic education around we have food labels on our food, not just for the nutritionists out there, but for everyone to have a little bit more awareness around um, what are we buying, what are we eating, etc. And so I do think that it comes back to maybe some basic skills that kids should learn, maybe in school, I don't know, or, or maybe at home, um, how to read a food label and how to know a little bit about that. Again, not to steer people into getting obsessive. I don't want to do that. Yes. But to your point, you know, is this bag of Doritos, is this uh, four snacks worth or is this one snack worth? You know, like just to have a better sense of that. Um, I think that's, that's it's just important. It's kind of like learning how to, I don't know, balance your checkbook or make sure you know how much yeah. you spend on your credit card. Just basic stuff that I think we should we should learn about. No, I think it's so I think it's so true. So, you know, okay, so now I want to ask you too. Now we talked about I want to go back to the social media thing, but I want to ask you since we're on the subject of talking about food and about yeah. we talked a lot about diets. So tell me, you know, okay, why you feel diets don't work. And I know that you talked about is your is your alternative, is it that intuitive eating or is it something different? Um, so diets, diets don't work um, because they're, they're very usually, they're usually not sustainable in the sense of they're putting people at a, a lower caloric intake than their body needs, which is if it's subtle and it's based upon hunger, fullness and satiety, um, the body can adjust to that. But usually a lot of diets are about, you know, lose 10 pounds in one week or they're usually so extreme that they put the body into almost a, a place of shock, you know, and the body goes into this place of feeling like it's it's malnourished and then it goes into an anxiety response of, um, okay, we're going to starve to death if we don't slow things down. So then your metabolic rate slows down and et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole biochemical cascade of things that then start to happen. So we know that and it actively resists further weight loss or further rapid weight loss. Um, what happens though, what's so critical there, Michelle, is that when you lose weight rapidly, you don't just lose adipose tissue or fat, as we call it. You don't just lose all the fat on your body, which is what most people are desiring to do when they go on a, on a, a diet. Not many people are looking to lose muscle mass as well. Mm -hmm. But in fact, this is a rough proportion, but if you think about it, for every pound you lose in weight, let's say, this is just you know an approximation, but 75% of that is adipose tissue or fat, but 25% of it is muscle. And that's at a slow, steady weight loss. Now, if you lose weight rapidly, then that ratio becomes a higher ratio of muscle and a lower ratio of fat. And so what ultimately happens when you are losing weight rapidly is you're actually preferentially losing a lot more muscle. Yes. Now, when you start to regain weight, you don't necessarily build back a lot of that muscle you replace, you start building back fat tissue. So you end up messing up your metabolic rate because you end up net-net with less muscle on your body than you started with and a higher percentage of body fat, which is, you know, whatever. But the, the point of that is that now 
you are at uh, you have a body that has a lower metabolic rate. That means that you burn fewer calories than you did before you ever went on the diet. Yes. So you know, and then as I said, do that over and over, and you're regaining weight plus some, plus some, plus some, and do that over ten years, and you're now you know, let's say fifty pounds higher than you ever were before you went on your first diet. And most people, when they go on their first diet, are often looking to lose. 10, 15, 20 pounds. It's not a significant amount of weight, relatively speaking. Um, and so that's also where the catch is because that innocent desire to just lose not, not a huge amount of weight can actually lead people to being in a situation where they've messed their body up. Yes. Um, so your question was about what's the answer to that? And, and our goal um, in the world of disordered eating and eating disorders where we see the consequence of people who've dieted and then gone down the rabbit hole as I as I like to call it in the sense of gotten gotten very obsessive um, and not being able to pull out of that. And so our answer to that is to help people move towards a more neutral relationship with food. By that I mean Sushi is just sushi, salad is just salad, pizza is just pizza. There's no right and wrong. Um, and we try to, at the initial stages of our treatment, we try to help people move beyond labelling food as good and bad. Now, we know that a salad is more nutritious and has more nutritional uh, value than, let's say, a slice of pizza, but pizza has its own value as well. Um, and so it's not about trying to find what's going to give you the most nutritional bang for your buck. It's about the fact that pizza is okay and salad is okay. But we want to move towards not being afraid of pizza um, and not overeating on pizza and trying to get back in touch with hunger and fullness and satiety. And I will throw in there that piece that we touched upon about also thinking about um, habituation towards larger portions, if that's been the case. Um, So that gets a bit tricky and this is why it's really, really helpful to work with a professional if you can Mm -hmm. Um, because to try and figure this stuff out on your own when you're bombarded with so much, um, honestly, uh, um, misinformation and and misleading information and uh, messed up information, it can be hard to figure out what's right from what is um, just not really good, um, you know, teachings and uh, what's complete antithesis to the research. So that's what we're trying to do is help people reclaim a more neutral relationship with food to try to uh, get clearer around their internal cues of hunger, fullness and satiety, to also identify foods that they really enjoy those are uh, kind of the three essential pillars there and then the habituation piece and to start kind of looking at that, you know. In other words, every meal doesn't need to be like Thanksgiving. Correct, yes. No? <laughs> yeah. 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 I think I think that's a great focus and I think that, you know, a lot of people should just, you know, look at that focus as well too because I, with all of this, like the dieting and stuff, I think it's really just really made our relationship with food so bad. Yes. And, and it's not, you know, it's like, you don't, people don't eat anymore because they, you know, they're eating either to, because they're dieting or they're not dieting, but they don't even understand like, you know, their relationship or the, 
or the fun part of it, because food can be fun too. And it, and it doesn't have, and even, you know, there is a place like I talk to my audience about moderation, you know, try to eat 80% good if you can and 20%, whatever, but mod, you know, don't be eating the crappy stuff 24 seven, every single day. It's, it's in, it's in moderation. And I think that part of it, I think sometimes people just feel like they throw in the towel because they don't understand how to do moderation. Oh, it's so hard. So I'm just, you know, forget it, you know, because, and diets are so restrictive. I can't do all that. So you get the, you get the, the, on this side of the spectrum where it's like, oh, I'm just not going to do anything. So, you know, we just, we've made all these little boxes and compartments to try to put people in instead of really just teaching overall health and, and nutrition and to try to be healthy in all different areas of, of, of our lives. Yeah. Absolutely. All different areas of our lives. And, and I think you were touching upon it earlier too, Michelle, the idea around, you know, body image and how that comes into all of this. Um, and, and I was thinking about that and, and what we try to do with our clients, because often our clients will come to us with a lot of um, self-loathing around their body image. And what we try to do is help our clients just get to a place of neutrality with their body. So I know there's a lot of body positivity right now, but sometimes it can be a little bit too much for people who loathe their body to go from loathing to loving. It can feel like too much of a switch um, and they don't really relate to that. So what we try to do is can we just get to a place of neutrality where we're not bashing our body all the time, Mm -hmm. which by the way, if you're not bashing your body all the time and checking yourself in the mirror and pinching, you know, our waists and all of this stuff that we do to ourselves, that can also help to be more neutral with food and to trust more in the hunger formless piece because you're hopefully less consumed with calories and weight gains and shifts and such, which by the way, Michelle, I'm a big proponent of throwing out the scale. Um, I don't know if that's something as a nurse practitioner that you uh, you promote, but I think that there's a lot of damage that comes. There's a lot of damage that can come from using the scale in an obsessive way, which is what we see a lot with our, with our clients anyway. But the idea of, of body neutrality and really coming down to um, just just being grateful for your body. Like I may hate the way my body looks, but I'm really grateful for the fact that my legs work and it can get me to work and I have a brain and I can type and do my emails or whatever. So that kind of basic stuff to help them get towards a more healed relationship with their bodies. Um, And, you know, by default, as we were saying, we want to help them get towards a more healed relationship with food as well. Yeah, I I do not, I'll be honest with you, I never step on a scale. Yeah. That's just not who I am. I like, I, I hired, I hired a trainer. My, my audience knows this a year ago because I, I wanted to get more healthy and I wanted to learn different things in the gym. So, you know, I gauge myself by how I feel about how my clothes fit different things. So, you know, and then I told the same thing to my daughter. I said, you know, do not get on the scale because that's not a true reflection. You, you get obsessed and you get attached to that number that you see, and then it's an it's a number, and you know I understand body mass index. We do that in our office, yes, and we have people step on the scale in our office every time they come in unless they refuse. Um, but you know I like the approach of understanding and learning about your body. I'm very much into learning about our bodies and understanding our bodies so that we can be healthier. And yes. um, and and to know you know I am not because I did a podcast on body positivity thing, like, oh, I don't know, maybe several months back. 
because I was having a really hard time with that, you know, because being a health professional like you, I want people to be healthy, but I also want them to be happy with who they are. So I think for me, you know, I, I think we all need to be happy no matter where we're at on the scheme of things at today. And we have to love ourselves for who we are today. And, you know, if we're putting a foot forward to try to be healthy in any areas of our life, I think that is a definite positive and a shift in the forward direction. Um, and there's a lot of things that keep us down to where we can't always reach all those goals. Like you said, you know, looking for professional help like yourself, or, you know, you, there's so much misleading information because I do, you know, my specialty, one of them is hormones. And, you know, you get all the misconceptions about hormones, you know, and about the thyroid. Everybody who is overweight comes in, oh, it's my thyroid. You know, it must be my thyroid and the poor thyroid, you know, I have to come into its defense because you can run other levels and a lot of times their levels are just normal. Yeah. But I think that you hit on the key thing. And I was thinking about this too, because my friend just texted me about her daughter about, um, resetting her metabolism. Her daughter told her that she thinks her metabolism is broke. And then it goes back to me thinking now when you're talking and I was telling her too, you know, like when you do these yo-yo diets and how every time you go on here and you lose the weight and you gain it back, then it's at a higher reset. And then you have to kind of figure out to do more to get it there. And then people plateau and they get all crazy about that kind of thing. That's right. So I think it's just learning about the basic stuff. Like, you know, like you said, hunger, you know, cetacean, you know, portion size, um, you know, how our body, you know, operates, you know, what the fuel is doing and how our body burns it and what we have to do, I think, you know, needs to be, but again, in our school system, we do not teach about nutrition at all. That got cut out a long time ago. And, you know, and we're lucky that people, the kids even get exercise in school anymore. And, you know, and when they are coming, you know, a lot of people who are lower, lower income, they get all the junk stuff that they get for free. And I think, you know, it's just about education and it's education in a very positive, loving manner on all fronts, you know, because I have several of my clients, you know, they do not, you know, I try not to say the word obese because they don't like to hear that. And like my daughter constantly reminds me, mom, people who are fat, like this is her words, mom, we know we're fat. Okay. We don't need to be reminded of it. It just makes us feel bad. And it's true. You know, so I think that we have to learn how to have a better approach. And I don't think that our approach is all that great the way that it is right now. Mm. And, um, you know, medicine needs to really make a more positive impact and try to make that approach better and to really get people to learn. But again, like I said, you know, in the, in the Western medicine on my end, you know, it is not built into our healthcare system at all. There's no, there's no room, no time to teach people about all these things. Yes, we want you to be healthy and we want you to get your diabetes into control, but you've got, here's your five minutes and, you know, then you go figure it out on your own. And, And that's sad because our system isn't built to support people in anything. Okay. And I, you know, and I'm in the field and I, you know, and I say that to people. So I think that's why where you're coming from and education from people who are really have the knowledge is so important because there is so much garbage, like you said, on the internet, there's good stuff, but there's a lot of garbage and people have all these misconceptions over stuff and they don't know whether they're coming or going. And sometimes I'm like, I agree with you because I I read all this stuff and I get confused too. So, and and I'm in the profession constantly changing. And then we're, we're expecting you to understand all this. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just, there's there's so much there, isn't there? And, And I really appreciate your insight on this, Michelle, and you sharing it 
because you're there in the trenches and you're talking about your five to seven minute time slot that you have with each of your clients. And, you know, what what really can you be expected to do? I mean, they've come in usually because, you know, they're, they're in trouble about, you know, they've got something that they need you to help them with. But then to do the education on top of that, I can see where that just, it just doesn't happen because there's just no time for it. Um, and the difficulty too with the whole medical field is, you know, as a registered dietitian, we are still trained calories in, calories out. Mm-hmm. You know, so what I've shared with you today, I didn't learn in my master's degree of clinical nutrition, um, and they're still not taught this. Um, so that is profoundly alarming to me. So therefore, for the average citizen, if they do even go and see a registered dietitian, more likely than not, they will put them on a diet for their mm-hmm. health, Correct. which I think is just outrageous. Um, and so, you know, we need to do a lot more uh, in the medical field, um, all of us, doctors, nurses, registered dietitians, to make sure that we're up on the latest research. And we've known this research around dieting for more than 15 years. You know, it's just a, a very slow proliferation. I mean, the average doc gets one nutrition class if they're lucky through their whole medical degree. So when we talk about going to see your doctor for weight loss, your doctor is not your expert. Um, the nutritionist should be, that, but the nutritionist is also trained in calories in, calories out. So more and more nutritionists like myself or registered dietitians is our correct title. Um, we're coming together with this research around um, disordered eating, eating disorders, intuitive eating, um, the anti-diet uh, information that I've shared today with you, just trying to spread the word um, and get that real information out there so that um, you know, people can uh, know what's what's the reality and what they they perhaps should be doing, um, as opposed to a lot of the misinformation. Definitely. So, in our last few minutes here, I want to ask you if there is a possibility, and if there's not, this is okay too, because I'm just shooting the breeze here. Sure. So, if somebody okay who's listening to the podcast today and they want to get started on this intuitive eating. And they don't know where to begin. What are some things that they can do, you know, and how to start recognizing this? Because like, I think, like I, we discussed before, I think it's un, we've lost that, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, like until I started working out, I'm not, I, I try to eat healthy, but sometimes when I'm at my job, you know, I'm eating, you know, while I'm in between seeing patients, it's not always the greatest when I'm so busy. And, sure. when I, and then when I get home, I find I do a better job. Actually, I find a better job like when I'm home because I can go to the refrigerator and snack and do different things on my own. But before I started working out, I would not get really hungry, you know, but now that I'm working out, I, you know, I, I, okay, I got him home from work today. I had a couple patients this morning. I'm like, oh, I need to eat because I'm really hungry. So, okay, I need, to, I, I need carbs. For me, I need carbs because it makes yeah. my brain feel better. And I get hypoglycemic when I'm not eating. So I went and had it. But if people don't recognize that and they have to start like retraining themselves to move into that direction, what are some things that they can start to implement in their daily thing to get on that bandwagon? Absolutely. Great question. Two things come to mind um, that you can do on your own by yourself. Um, The first is there's a terrific app um, because we're in a technology uh, world now. It's called Recovery Records. Okay. We use it with all of our clients. And what we like about it, Michelle, is it doesn't count calories, but it asks you to rate your hunger 
before a meal and your fullness after. And it also asks you a lot of things that are around uh, emotional components to do with eating and body image. Um, it's actually got some really nice research behind it. So that's called Recovery Records. Okay. Um, so that's an app. So you could, you know, start tracking your day-to-day intake and be looking at hunger and fullness and emotional eating around your day. It's pretty intensive, um, but it's a, it's a great thing to do. The other thing that comes to mind for me is there's a terrific book on intuitive eating um, by Evelyn Triboli. That is a wonderful book and they have, a, they have a, a workbook that goes along with it. So there's a book that tells you about what is intuitive eating and how to set yourself up to uh, learn how to relearn how to eat intuitively. And then there's a workbook that you can also buy alongside of it that you could then help to try to uh, follow along with that and see if you can get yourself back into eating in a more intuitive way. Those are two things that come to mind that you can do on your own without needing to work with a professional, say, such as myself, who's an eating disorder professional and can help you also with that. Okay. Now, does somebody, if they wanted to work with you, do you? Can they be in another state or do they have to be in New York? Ideally in New York, just because face-to-face is always great, but we will also do Zoom sessions with clients. Okay. Um, and they may only need a couple of sessions to get started. And then once they're off and going on their own, they may just need a monthly top-up session or something like that. So we can certainly set something up such as that for them. Okay, cool. So tell us or tell the audience, how can they find you on your your website? Do you have a website, your channels, any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So our website is balancedtx.com. So that's balance with a D, balancedtx.com. They can directly call us, which is 212-645-6903. And those are probably the two best ways to get in touch with us through our website. And we have a um, you can come in and connect with us and have a free 20 minute um, assessment of what might be going on with you, with your relationship with food. So we can do that kind of discovery session for free with people through our website or just give us a call. Okay, great. And I will put all that stuff. I will link it in our show notes so that you ladies can, um, if you want to get in touch with Milani, you can do that. If you want to, if you're in New York and you happen to want to go there, that'll be great. So I just want to say thank you so much. This was really enlightening and I learned a lot and I'm sure that our audience learned a lot too and, you know, different things that they can start to put into play because, you know, we always talk about here looking at different things and incorporating new stuff into our life and not to be afraid of some of those alternative things and thinking and getting back on that wavelength. So thank you so much for sharing with us. I too appreciate it. Thanks so much, Michelle. A pleasure. Okay. Thank you and have a blessed day. You too. Bye. The information, including but not limited to text, graphics, images, and other material contained in the Well Woman Healthy Lifestyle podcast is for educational purposes only. The purpose of the Well Woman Healthy Lifestyle is to promote broad consumer understanding and knowledge of various women's health topics. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health care provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment before undertaking any new health care regime. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have read or heard on one of our podcasts. 